See, this is the real secret of life. To be completely engaged with what you're doing in the here and now. And instead of calling it work, realize this is play. Welcome to the Restore to Explore podcast, hosted by your soulmates from the Foot Collective Australia. I'm Jim Dooner. And I'm Mac Lyon. We're on a mission to empower humans to restore their natural health and function from the ground up so they can explore movement and life with freedom and confidence. This week I'm back with Tom from Breath Performance to explore the concept of Achilles tendinopathy. So what it is, how it happens and what you can do about it based on the current research as well as our experience with our physiotherapy clients. If you're struggling to make progress in your rehab, please feel free to reach out as we can either help you directly with our online consultations or we can point you in the right direction of other practitioners or resources that can help you. This week's episode is brought to you by the TFC Soulmate, your ultimate all-in-one restoration and exploration tool. Made from cork, TFC Soulmates are an eco-friendly, lightweight and durable mobility balance and foot training tool. This nifty piece of kit can be used as a massage roller for releasing tight muscles, a mini foot roller for the best darn foot rub you can imagine, a balance beam for endless play, and even a slant board for incline and decline training. It also includes two toe resistance bands to help get those stiff tootsies stretching. Every TFC Soulmate comes with an in-depth online training system designed by TFC health professionals with more than 50 exercises and a fully structured program to ensure you get the most out of it. The Soulmate Training System 2.0 has just launched with a heap of new ways for you to move and play. Your Soulmate really is the perfect companion to mobilize your toes, feet and ankles, strengthen your lower body, improve balance, posture and alignment, and prevent and rehab common foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, bunions, ankle sprains, Achilles tendonitis, and so much more. Every order also helps Reforest Australia by planting one tree. To celebrate the relaunch of our podcast, we are now offering free shipping Australia-wide for all Soulmate kits. To learn more, head to tfc-shopaus.com. You'll find the link in our show notes. Okay, so we're trying a new style today. New format. New format. So having listened back to some of our previous episodes, I was thinking about the fact that we're both explaining things from a physio perspective um, and I think we do a decent enough job of keeping it very sort of accessible, um, but we want to make sure that we're not getting too jargony and we're not um, confusing people with um, different words or different ways of explaining things. So rather than us both having our physio hat on and explaining things from that perspective, I'm going to take uh, the more, what would you call this hat? I'm going to call it the jargon police hat. The, jar- <laughs> the jargon police hat. Exactly. Um, so I'm just going to come at it as though I don't really know much. If I feel that there's something that Tom is absolutely missing, it could happen. It's I'll, chi- I'll chime in. Um, but for the most part, I'll play the role of just asking Tom questions. And Tom is, let's face it, much more knowledgeable than me about a lot of these conditions. He's lying, but he's, I appreciate the compliment. He's been a clinician for longer than I have. Um, he's been in, you know, actually practicing in clinic for longer than I have. So. Um, I trust that he'll steer us in the right direction and um, 
They're like it's the millionaire hot seat and the, I might phone a friend. You yeah, know, yeah. That yeah. might work out. We are really putting him in the hot seat here. <laughs> um, so if we say anything wrong, it's it's Tom's fault. Yeah, blame me. <laughs> nah, but realistically, we say it at the start of each episode, but uh, this is just our current, I guess, approach and our viewpoint on these conditions. They're not, it's not necessarily the be all and end all. And we're just trying to give an overview of all the things that we think are important to know, um, mostly so that you can be empowered with the knowledge and tools that you need to, um, I guess, rehabilitate or go through that process. So things can change based on research that comes out or things that we, that come into our um, field of knowledge, field of awareness uh, and our experience. But as a general rule, the, the fundamental principles will tend to stay the same and um, if you actually speaking of fundamental principles, if you haven't already listened to the principles of rehabilitation podcast that we did earlier in the series, I think that's episode two or three, uh, in the series. So go and check that out first, because that will give you a really good foundation baseline of understanding the general rehab process and things that are important for rehab before you dive into these more specific conditions. Perfect. So that all of that being said let's dive in the achilles let's start with what is the achilles tendon you've asked that very well <laughs> so for, for everyone at home i think most people probably know what their achilles is it is that lovely big thing at the back of your ankle that sort of attaches to your heel bone so when, when you look at it you've got you've got two of them left and right it's important to know and it's it's the strongest tendon in your body i think is probably the best way to start off your idea it's a very powerful sort of piece of equipment and understanding that it has a strong role with most motions that require you to be upright. So whether that's walking, whether that's running, whether that's jumping, it plays a huge role in your ability to do any of those motions. Yeah. And uh, what, like, what is its role in those motions? So big, biggest, biggest way to look at it, it functions like a spring or a force mm. uh, transmission uh, conductor, uh, depending upon its what, what motion you're doing. So if you are jumping, for example, it's supposed to function like a spring, like a pogo stick or like, you know, something that is quite firm but bouncy. The other aspect is it's supposed to help transmit force because it's a tendon and most tendons, particularly when they're long, are designed to transmit force from point A to point B. In this case, kind of from your foot up the chain, you need to make sure it's, it's robust enough to do that. And then it's pliable enough but firm enough to be springy yeah yeah so yeah it's i guess it comes down to that efficiency concept mm. because if you're trying to use muscular force all the time um or muscular force for everything without a springiness then you're using more energy than what you need to yeah 100 and if you know your achilles is doing its job and you can essentially just use less oxygen and less energy that's where like the idea of efficiency comes from we're just doing the same motion with less effort yeah which is exactly what you want yeah exactly <laughs> we're all about saving energy for yeah. other things right yeah. especially when it comes to performance but also it makes sense that you know if your achilles isn't working the way it should then other things will have to compensate and that can lead to overloading other structures and so on which is what you see all the time you know a lot of people will end up having their knee hip or like back problems and then sometimes you have to go away from those and go what's going further down that chain down mm. your leg and you'll find that the foot ankle calf which includes the achilles complex probably just isn't helping do as much as it could and therefore other structures above have to do more work mm. 
and then I guess uh, vice versa as well when the Achilles gets um, hurt. Well, well, in this case, we're talking about Achilles tendinopathy, more commonly known as Achilles tendinitis. Do we want to just talk about the uh, the difference there? Yeah, so it's a tough one. It's um, so. I think traditionally and historically it was more the tendonitis was the main word that most people heard first. And the reason for that was that tendonitis, that itis, as we know, means inflammation. So it was presumed that when you would hurt your Achilles, there would be a big inflammatory component. But across time, what they started to find is it's not necessarily a massive uh, inflammation or inflammatory effect of your Achilles. So when you have an Achilles tendinopathy, essentially all it's saying is, your Achilles has lost its ability to function as it has or as it used to. And what happens if you want to get your visualization hats on? Your Achilles is made up of a thing called collagen. Collagen is like a bunch of little ropes that are all tied together to go up the Achilles. And when you disrupt or you have an insult to one of those, so you can say tear some fibers or tear some parts of that rope, it stops functioning like it should. And as it tries to heal itself, if you're not giving it the right stimulus, it's very haphazard. It's essentially, oh yeah, we've got all this nice collagen here. Now we don't. We want to try and replace it. So it starts putting blood vessels in. It starts putting other substances in that shouldn't be there. And that leads to your Achilles having less ability to sort of take on the load. And even through that whole process, you find that there's still not a hell of a lot of inflammation, particularly if it is the Achilles tendon itself. And I think that's like the big thing to find out. Like there's a, it's a lot of complex physiological processes that occur when you have a tendinopathy, but it's really just the inability of your tendon to perform the function that you want. Mm. Yeah. And so it gets a little bit semantic of like tendonitis or tendinopathy. And there's been lots of other names that have come up throughout the time. I think generally the research has settled on tendinopathy. Um, so it's a little bit semantic, but it is important for people to understand because if it's, if there's inflammation there, then, or if you think there's inflammation there as the driving force of your pain, then you might do different things to address that. Like say anti-inflammatories or a lot of people might use ice or things like that because that's what they understand is mm. how to treat inflammation. Um, which in itself is kind of, uh, <laughs> not really the best touchy subject, <laughs> touchy subject. Um, but even, even so, uh, if there is, if the inflammatory process isn't the main driver of the pain or of the, um, of the dysfunction, then those things aren't going to be the best, uh, treatment for them. No. Um, but so it- Sorry, go oh, on. I was say like it's a very good point that you and you sort of said there that, that the semantics are necessary when it comes to a sort of clinical application mm, from you know, the, your the practitioner standpoint. If you're speaking to someone down, you know, in your local pub or a friend, it's probably a lot less important. But it does, you know, help people understand more what's actually going on with their bodies if you know we use the correct or most up-to-date terminology for sure yeah and so what you're saying just there is that tendinopathy actually is like a failed healing response so we've talked before on the podcast about the imbalance of capacity and demand can lead to overloading structures and and injuring them and then what's a good analogy for like a fail like i guess an easy one would be if people if you cut your skin somewhere and you just kept rubbing the cut and didn't leave it time to just actually heal properly then that would that would be like a failed healing response so i suppose if you have an an injury to the achilles or some kind of overload of that structure and you kept 
um, you know, the metaphor of rubbing would be just kept running on it mm. and maybe covered up the symptoms with anti-inflammatories or with, um, you know, more supportive footwear or something like that without actually addressing the cause and, and um, without actually, I guess, strengthening the tendon or allowing it to heal properly, then that would be, that would, what that would be what would cause a failed healing response. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it just comes down to listening to the body. Yeah. Right. Like if, you know, let's use your cut as an example. Like if you, if you cut your skin and you decide I'm not going to put like sutures in, or not going to bandage it up and you leave it for a week and you keep moving that cut, it's not going to heal. And the problem with that is your skin, as the example, is supposed to be a very protective organ for everything internal. Mm. And you can still get away with having that cut, but your risk of it getting infection in it, your risk of getting like you know, weird stuff going on with it or like other long-term systemic problems is higher. Mm. But you can still function because you're a human and you're very adaptable. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, the point we're trying to get there, get across there is that the body is an amazing healing machine. Mm. It wants to heal and it, given the right environments and the right inputs, and obviously that involves listening to it, it will heal properly. Mm. But oftentimes, you know, in our, in our culture of uh quick fixes and, disconnection and, yeah. from our body and and quick fixes and you know like oh i need to hit this uh, i need to keep playing my sport or i need to do this i need to do that then often listening to the body takes a back seat to um, just getting something done mm. <laughs> and so yeah i think that's a, a big theme that we always have is listen to your body mm. Um, I was say, and like following on from like that whole concept to understand again, like we've been a bit semantic with the wording. I think it's important for people to understand within our world, we have two sort of different ways that we categorize the Achilles tendinopathy, right? There's, there's the one that is what we call a mid portion. That's like the one, if you put your hand on your heel and you just go up a few centimeters away from where it attaches, then all of a sudden that's like the, the midsection of the Achilles. And that's the most common one. That's where a lot of people particularly that sort of 30 40 year plus mark start to feel that discomfort in their achilles and then the other one is the insertional and that's where you can feel your achilles attach right to the heel and again similar to what you said understanding that there are different types or different positions is just going to be important for how you manage it across your journey going forward Mm -hmm. and how would people know so first of all how would people know that they've got achilles tendinopathy and um, how would they know which one they've got mid portion or insertional? So the mid, the mid portion slash insertional seems to be the easiest thing to differentiate. It's purely location based. Mm-hmm. It is, if you feel more pain right at the attachment, then it's very much more likely insertional. If you have more pain in, it's above the attachment, it's going to be more likely mid portion. Mm-hmm. I'll put the caveat to that. There are other things that may be going on in the heel area, particularly yep. like, that aren't an Achilles tendinopathy, but for the sake of this part of the conversation, that's all we're going to leave it at. Sure. When it comes to understanding what, you know, how do you know if you have it? I think the biggest one is that morning stiffness in that area. So whether that's the mid portion or it's the, you know, the assertional, if you do a bout of exercise and then the next morning you wake up quite stiff and that's an ongoing thing, you start to see that maybe that tendon, your Achilles tendon isn't able to take on the load. And then, gradually across time that stiffness may end up being in pain which Mm. then can come on and then it can disappear when you start warming it up and you you start exercising but afterwards or a few hours afterwards or again the next morning it actually starts to hurt 
those are like the probably the two big telltale signs and growing here it's a lot less likely but that you can get swelling in that area if it's quite severe a lot mm. of that is often seen in like a rupture mm-hmm. if you've actually torn part of the tendon which does happen but it is a lot harder to do it's far less common than the the tendinopathy itself mm. and again back to what we were talking about like it's a healing a healing response that has failed if you just can't do the same things that you were doing prior so whether that's going for your 5k run or you're going for a 10k run you're trying to jump you're trying to play sport and you can't achieve that same motion that's just a good indicator that something's going on in the area yeah for sure and so i guess people people are more likely or who is more likely to develop it's a great question (laughs) um i think uh, the research will mostly state people who partake in any form of running um and i think you know the most common runner is the recreational runner Mm. and when you read between the lines of it, a lot of that has to do with uh, a lot of factors such as warming up, training for the run, having that sort of disconnect that most people have with the shoe choice that they have. And just, again, living in a world of we've got to do a 5K, I've got to do it in a certain time. I've got to, I feel pressurized. It's not a, I'm just going to go out and enjoy my run. A lot of people are just looking at their watch or just trying to get through and slog through the miles. Mm. And that is that type of person the recreational weekend warrior mostly because they just don't understand or don't have the time to do the other stuff yet true because they're not they're probably not thinking about running as a a skill-based movement they're more thinking about how much running they can get in like it's just it's just i want to i want to exercise i want to run off all the food that i ate this week or however however it is but it's usually not they're like uh fully focused and interested on developing their running technique and and the skill of running and it's like one of the most common cases i get in clinic is the you you have a a recreational runner comes in and they're probably used to running two three times a week and it's often a way of relieving stress for them as well Mm. so it's not necessarily even just running for the enjoyment of running it's running away from stress which does help and there's a lot of good research for that Um, but Again, like you said, it's not skill-based and they're not training for something particular. They're just... Pounding the pavement. Getting out there. And we know that there are different ways to run and those different ways can then load your Achilles in different ways and you layer all that stuff on top of it and you can see pretty quickly how people can end up having a very sore Achilles. Mm, definitely. So what are the, I guess, the, yeah, the risk factors? So we've just talked about running technique, sort of alluded to mm. footwear... What's the biggest risk factors for uh, what should people be aware of or, or be um, avoiding or understanding for what will put them at risk? We were talking about this before we went on and I think it's hilarious that if you look up the, the, the main ones, the biomechanical abnormalities or impairments, everything can go wrong. <laughs> so whether you have a perceived or actual leg length difference, if your foot has the inclination to be super flat or if your foot is the opposite and has a really big arch, all of those within the literature essentially have some influence on your Achilles tendinopathy. Mm-hmm. I think the main one is always going to be the training load and yep. volume. That seems to be all load, volume, and intensity. Like those things are going to have the biggest influence in terms of what happens through your Achilles. But with that said, the what happens to your foot and then your running quality or your running movement are often going to influence where that load goes and having a greater understanding of that can then help you start to go, okay, do I need to slightly alter the way I run to not 
always load my Achilles or is my Achilles kind of what we said before, is it just working really hard because my foot isn't doing what it should and therefore it's taking on more load? Those are all important things to factor in. But I think you'd find that the bulk of research would say and the bulk of experience would say it's mostly a load thing laid with the movement quality. Mm. Yeah. And that's, I guess it being a load thing, like the most common example is someone has a very sharp increase in training load and then they start getting these symptoms. And the question is, well, you know, regardless of what biomechanical abnormalities, um, like you mentioned, like overpronation or, you know, a very high arch or whatever, then if they just increased gradually, would their body be able to um, compensate and manage that load? Or, you know, if they address the biomechanical abnormalities, would they have been able to increase their training load that fast and not experience an issue? Possibly. Mm. It's, hard, it's hard to really know. I don't it, think we'll ever know. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I think the thing is, it's, it's the same reason why most people do strength training, right? Because there's a great benefit of, if I just do a general bunch of strength movements and then I go try to perform a task such as running, I'm probably going to be better off than the person who didn't do the strength training. Mm. It's the best way to look. It's always going to be, it depends and it's a factor of everything. Yeah. You know, we, we know that there are more efficient ways to run than others. That does, oh, has a huge influence on from what the shoes do to your foot. But you can still, again, get away with it because you're a human. You're very adaptable and... It, there isn't a right slash wrong way to run. There's just certainly more efficient ways that you can learn to run. Mm. And more efficiency can often come from better, better function of the individual parts like your foot, ankle, knee, hip, and also better coordination between those parts. Yes. Um, well said, well said. Thank you. <laughs> so what about footwear? Oh, we love a good footwear discussion, don't we? <laughs> we do. Um, well, I mean... I think we have a bias, right, of we like natural footwear. We, we like footwear that allows your foot to function like a foot. Now, what we know that's often going to come with a shoe that's, you know, quite flat, it's quite wide, there isn't much cushioning most of the time. What we know about that shoe is it will load your foot and calf Achilles more. Mm. The reason is it has to. That's kind of the way it's designed. That's not a good or a bad thing. It's just something to understand. But what we know with the opposite type of shoe, the really, the clunkier, the heavier one, the thick sole that has the cushion, that often offloads some of the the work in that area up the chain to the knee and hip. Mm-hmm. However, in the long term, that shoe can be quite problematic because your foot stops functioning like a foot. Mm. The reason that's important, and this is the reason why I sort of laugh at the, the biomechanical abnormalities, is if your foot can't do sort of its two main purposes of absorb force and then become a rigid leader for you to propel force. Then all of a sudden, everything up the chain will start to work harder. What is the very first structure that is up that chain? It's the Achilles tendon. So if your foot is just not able to absorb and then create a rigid lever, which often will happen when you have those heavy, chunky shoes on, it's no wonder that the Achilles is the first thing that gets sore for a lot of people. Mm. And I, I think I, you could add to that is that most people aren't just wearing those kinds of shoes for running, but they'll wear a shoe that's rigid, heeled, narrow, all these things that actually reduce the capacity, the overall capacity of the foot and the ankle, um, such that when you do go and load through running or sports or whatever it is, then you're much more likely to exceed that um, exceed your capacity because the capacity is lower mm. so use a so, visual example i'd reckon like if you go barefoot 
and your foot is flat on the ground, your shin is often straight perpendicular with your ankle. Now, if you are someone who wears a dress shoe or a heel, your foot is now no longer parallel. Your sort of foot goes down and then you're in what we call like plantar flexion or your toes are pointed down. Mm. You never really go through dorsiflexion for most of the day relatively to how much you would if your foot was flat or barefoot. Yeah. So kind of so what you just said, I'm not even doing it during the day. So I'm not really exposing it to that range or that sort of load with walking. And then I try to do that in running and with it, high loads yeah and it's it's not ready for it because it yeah. doesn't have the resiliency because if we don't go into that range which is knee going over the toe which is dorsiflexion mm. which can put some strain on the achilles because that's what it does yeah and i think where people can get confused is they might go for a run um say they hear about all this barefoot shoe stuff and they go for a run in barefoot shoes when they haven't worn them before and they haven't built up gradually and then they end up with something like Achilles tendonitis. That, that could be actually a pretty common story. And, and uh, some people listening may have already experienced that. I didn't experience that, but I did experience insanely tight and sore calves <laughs> after my first 5K in barefoot shoes. I remember that feeling. It, Ooh, oh, boy. They were sore. Yeah. So the, the issue there isn't necessarily the, the footwear itself. It's that your body wasn't, was, your body was used to thick, cushioned heeled shoes and then you went straight into the barefoot footwear the way we know the issue isn't the barefoot footwear is one we evolved for our entire human history not wearing shoes or wearing very flat and minimalist shoes at at most so we know and we know that those populations weren't riddled with achilles tendonitis because they survived. <laughs> yeah, they're still here. If we couldn't run, if we had Achilles tendonitis and we couldn't run back then, we wouldn't have survived. Mm. It's kind of that simple, I think. Yeah. Keep it simple. <laughs> um, and we also know that because there are a lot of people who have successfully transitioned to barefoot running or, barefoot, or running in barefoot shoes. And it all comes down to allowing time for your body to adapt and also allowing... Uh, or giving it the right inputs in order for it to recover well from the training load. I think that's like, I'll use a personal example because it, it's always useful to see like when I, I did a barefoot run, sorry, a, a, a natural shoe run in March. All right. And I definitely hurt my left calf. And I, it's because I tried to push the 5k time a bit because I was doing mm. a park run and it was terrible. Didn't feel great. But then I was like, all right, I really need to improve this skill. So I went back to the drawing board and went, all right, if I can't run in that shoe, what is it? And a lot of that was foot wasn't quite functioning the way I thought it needed to. And I didn't have the ability to load into that sort of running position barefoot. So I, I went back, started doing a little bit of work, which was what we'll probably get into some of it. And then I started slowly building into the run. And now I can run barefoot on concrete for 30 minutes with absolutely no problem. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with like, you know, it was a magic bullet. It was a transitional period. I took my time and we went, through stages of things that I thought I needed to accomplish. And probably most importantly, listen to the body. Yeah. Like if it, if it was giving you feedback from whatever that is, like there's a stiffness here or an awareness there, jotting that down and going, okay, like I'm aware that I acknowledge it. And then that allows you to plan forward. Like, is this something that I need to do? Or is this something that I should maybe step back and have a think about first? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the general theme here is, it does come down to load management really at the end of the day in terms of how much volume and intensity are you doing, like you said, uh, or how are you 
how are you receiving the loads that you're getting from that activity based on how your certain parts are functioning? And so um, we can influence the way our body experiences load by training certain areas, like you said, training the foot or training the ankle to be more mobile and stronger. Um, and, you know, another another load that might be uh, contributing is... or or another common thing might be someone does the majority of their running on grass and then they go and run on concrete. Mm. And that's a different environmental condition. You're going to receive different loads from that. Um, or, you know, maybe an outdoor soccer player <laughs> plays heaps uh, throughout the season outdoor and then goes into futsal and it's a much harder, less um, giving surface. And then they might develop it there. So any, any big change in load, uh, over a short period of time can predispose you to injury and you know especially as obviously we're talking about Achilles tendonitis or tendinopathy yeah yeah the other thing that's worth mentioning is just that uh, certain you know if you've got metabolic dysfunction if you've got a really um, high BMI or you've got diabetes or obesity or um, certain inflammatory disorders that can also contribute to Achilles tendinopathy, according to the research, but it also just contributes to any mm. pain, discomfort, Pretty much disease, really. any, any sort of condition, disease, pathology, whatever word you want to go for. And those sorts of things are often linked as probable factors. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's not to, it's not to get you down if you do have those, um, conditions, but it's just saying that those, those are factors. And also, it's also the awareness that even if, you don't, if, you, if you, you don't have diabetes or you don't have a specific inflammatory disorder, if your general lifestyle isn't focused on health, like getting good, good quantity, quality of sleep, eating good, real food, um, you know, managing stress in your life, if those things aren't uh, taken care of or um, being looked into, then even if you don't have a specific disease, then that will affect how your experience of pain and how you recover from exercise and how you recover during a rehab process. Mm. So always worth flagging that. We, d- we sort of discussed that in the, in the principles podcast, but um, it's, just, it's just good to remind as we go. It's always good to touch base on those sorts of things. Yeah. So what else might the pain in that area be you mentioned before oh, that there's other things that are could... differential diagnosis. <laughs> yeah. So I think like the, the most common ones, um, uh, you can get a bursitis, which is the bursts are in your body, like little fluid filled sacs. I think a lot of people have heard of the word bursitis, like it gets mm. inflamed. It, a lot of that comes from like friction or rubbing. So if it's not used to going into an area and you force it there, or you have like the back of your shoe rubbing on it, that, that can all, happens pretty common mm-hmm. personally i've never seen a plantaris tendon problem i know they exist me either but like <laughs> apparently they're there they're common in the research uh, the ones that i often see are the people who who complain that they've got the achilles um more pain in their achilles area and they end up having more of a problem with their big toe tendon or their little toe tendons hmm. and it happens quite a lot because you you see like particularly with your big toe tendon where it wraps around the back it's a little bit back um, closer to your Achilles than where, say, your mm. tibialis posterior is or where your um, little toe tendon is. And it can mimic pain in the area. And a lot of that will come down to understanding what your big toe is doing and what your foot is doing, what it should be doing to help understand which of the problems it is. Um, referred pain is something that we always talk about. And that will often come 
I can never pronounce the spondyloarthropathy word properly. You just without, did. Yeah, without practice. You, uh. you have to have practice at getting those words out. It's a big fancy word that is sort of talking about inflammation and particularly like rheumatic diseases, which is just inflammation in joints. Mm. Again, I've never seen one, but I know my boss has. I've spoken to him about it in the past. And again, you're going to find that in certain people who have... Um, either some genetic or epigenetic changes or the older population who again have a lot of other comorbidities or mm. other factors a lot of the presentation can be similar but the pain tends to be a little bit more prolonged and doesn't seem to improve with you know warming it up or all the other stuff that we would find that the achilles does yeah but again i'm not an expert in rheumatic diseases or inflammatory problems yeah um but those are probably like the biggest ones that i found have you found anything else that so I think sometimes people get confused between plantar fasciitis and Achilles tendonitis, mm. but it's just, a lot of it comes down to the location of the pain. And again, interestingly, with all of these, well, especially anything musculoskeletal, aside from um, like the arthropathies, mm. like mm. you just mentioned, that are a bit more of like a um, autoimmune mm. related in, in a lot of cases. Um, autoimmune being the I guess your immune system turns on itself. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very, like it's, it is exactly what happens. It just decides um, that that marker is not what I want and starts breaking things down that it shouldn't be. Gets confused. Yeah. And so aside from those kinds of conditions, which are a bit more systemic than anything musculoskeletal, a lot of the treatments will end up being the same because you're in trying to improve the function of the areas, but also you, it will change a little bit on specific exercises that will are more likely to help them. I was about to say that probably the only other thing I've seen in the area um, is what you'd call an ostrigonum fracture, um, which is like there's little bony pieces that sort of spurt up at the back of your ankle that sometimes they can get fractured and that they can have pain in your Achilles region, but they don't present like Achilles problems. Mm. Um, same as like the fat pad. There's a, in front of your Achilles um, before you sort of get to your actual ankle joint, there's a bunch of like fatty tissue in there. There's one that's also under like your kneecap as well. Mm. It can have a um, bunch of pain sensation in there as well because it's very highly innovated. But again, it doesn't present like your Achilles tendinopathy would because if you pinch it, it hurts. It, similarly, it doesn't seem to reduce pain when it warms up. It can just be quite problematic every time that you go to push off or go into what we'd call that plantar flex or toe-pointed position. Sure. But again, they don't seem to be like a... I don't, don't see them as common either. They're mostly like an impact type of problem. Yeah. See them a lot with like rugby when people get tackled. Hmm. Yeah. Sounds a, gnarly. Not ideal. <laughs> um, so how do you treat it? If Assuming, you know, you do have Achilles tendinopathy, um, either diagnosed or you just, you know, have listened to this podcast and think that sounds like me. Um, we, I guess caveat would be we would always recommend going and seeing someone in person to, I guess, have it confirmed. Um, but if, if you understand the general principles of, you know, what's causing it and also the general principles of how to address it, then when you do go and see someone, if they're not giving you those things, then you know that you might need to be looking into other, other practitioners or other resources to help you. Because a lot of times you can go to practitioners who just want to give you passive um, treatments such as we, we discussed this, I think on the plantar fascia, fasci, fasciitis episode, but people will want to 
just massage you or just put needles in you or just give you orthotics or just change your footwear. All of these passive approaches, which may alter your symptoms in the short term, but won't actually change the load bearing capacity of your tendon. You also have the people who go the other way and just give you what they believe to be research-based exercise approaches, which are there's a ton of them for any sort of tendinopathies in the body. Mm. And it ends up making it worse because mm. the, the practitioner hasn't often addressed you as an individual, which can happen because of time pressure and all sorts of other things, experience, understanding, all that sort of stuff. So again, if you have had someone who's done both approaches and you, or you've had multiple practitioners who have had both approaches and it still hasn't worked, You've just got to find a different practitioner because there will be someone out there who can correctly diagnose the problem or point you in the right direction to get it sorted. Sure. There's always hope. There's always somewhere out yeah. there. And we are some of those practitioners. We if, try to be. <laughs> we do offer telehealth sessions mm. for anyone who's struggling to find someone in their sort of immediate mm. local area. Um, but all of that being said, what's the best place to start? How do people how do people treat Achilles tendinopathy or cure? Well, rehabilitate go on a journey to get it better (laughs) i think um this is something you always say in (laughs) calm down build up i really think that's a that's a jamesism more than anything and (laughs) i I took that from greg lehman yeah i think it's it's such a simple way of looking at it and it it is true like when when you often hear it what it means is you want to stop aggravating it now this is you using a cut example from before the one i always use and probably have used on the other podcast is that bruise analogy Mm. that if you know this thing hurts and you're worried about it Uh, if i said to you you hit your elbow on the desk and then it bruised up you wouldn't be concerned because you knew you hit it onto a desk and you could see the bruise the bruise if you don't poke it will disappear across time Mm. if you keep poking it that bruise is never going to go anywhere so the poking it in this case is doing the thing that keeps hurting the achilles right is that the excessive running the hill sprinting the jumping whatever we Mm. have to modify that activity to let it sort of rest and we what we have deemed that now world is relative rest and very important term because you still want to keep moving it i think that's the key and that semantic is very important it's very relative rest relative rest and this is i mean my personal approach to it and it sort of just goes with trying to understand your leg as a whole if we looked at your big toe your foot your ankle your knee your hip how does that contribute to your movement as a whole my often first thought with any tendinopathy particularly achilles and patella is that it has done too much work so the question is why Mm. why is that part doing more work so then you you go through a checklist of does your big toe have the ability to extend the reason is and we talked about this with the plantar fascia stuff when your big toe can extend it sets up your foot to create a rigid lever through what we call the windlass mechanism that rigid lever then allows you to push off better mm-hmm. hey can it do that because if it can't the achilles takes on more load the other part is when you try and land can your foot absorb the load because again if it can't more goes into the achilles and then can every other part your calf your shin muscles your, your quads and hammies and glutes can they all take on some load because if they can't then you ever i don't care what rehab you do keep calf raising keep calf dropping it will never get better because you're always loading that same spot Mm. so my first approach is is there some sort of fault or part of your leg that is not helping you and let's look to address that straight away because if we can change that aspect and let's say it for the sake of this example it is like your quadricep is just weak and doesn't have the ability to conduct force well teach the quad to take on some more load all of a sudden, some of that load gets shifted from your Achilles up to your quad because it can now take on more load. Mm. 
all of a sudden often you'll find pain sensations decrease partially because you've actively done something which then gives you the confidence to move but also you are shifting some of the load away from the current sore spot Mm. before anything else can we figure out some of those parts and again this is kind of back to your argument before it's like we can never really prove fully like is it just load or is it technique same thing i'm not going to say that every single person is going to have the same type of model but always you find there's a way to offload that spot yeah. with that relative rest and that's probably the first and most important part for me mm-hmm. and then going from that you know whether it's you know joint mobilizations moving stuff around just again get it moving getting people confident whether it's like the trigger pointing certain spots to bring highlighted awareness for all that stuff those are all things that you can actively start doing which then is a part of that relative rest and yeah. i think and they're, mm. sim- they're symptom they modify symptoms as well yeah. which can be really important not f- so that you can go straight back to your aggravating activity yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah that's like covering it up with a band-aid yeah but let's say you're you want to do your rehab but your achilles is really sore during and it gets like a bit frustrating and depressing trying to do this rehab while your achilles is mm. sore if you're able to modify some of those symptoms with some some just you know even calf tissue work where you're getting a ball or a roller into your calf um or some you know some mobilizations and that helps reduce your symptoms then the idea is you'll be able to do better rehab Mm. the other thing i think maybe we already touched on it but like you said is it load is it technique but the good the good way to look at it is that the technique will affect how much load Mm. goes through a certain structure um and maybe another example of that like you said with big toe extension if that doesn't work, then more load will go to the Achilles. And similarly, if your hips don't extend mm. because you're sitting in a chair all day, every day, or most of the time, then um, you know your hips going back into extension is a big part of how you powerfully push off while you're walking and running. Mm. And so if you're missing that um, capacity and therefore your glute isn't, um, or your hip extensors aren't doing their role, then the Achilles has to take more load as well. Yeah. So all of those factors come into technique, which will affect how much load your Achilles is exposed to. Mm. Which is, I think, very important to understand because again, if you can alter them really quickly, which you can for the most part, you can, if you can reduce symptoms, then that's going to make your life better. Yeah, and exactly. Once once you identify a lot of those, I think this, is, this might be an interesting talking point from our, our perspectives because from mine, uh, the whole eccentric thing seems silly. Purely because we went we through uni and you have all this updated research, right? You have this whole eccentric loading protocol, this whole eccentric concentric mm. protocol. So for people to understand that, eccentric is like lengthening tissue with load. Concentric is shortening tissue. So if you imagine a bicep curl, as I curl up, that's concentric. As I drop down, eccentric. And then you have isometric protocols. All of them have effectiveness. Isometric being... Trying to contract muscles without moving. Yeah. So trying to hold a position stationary and just to be actively working Mm -hmm. they all help right so it's not that one is better than the other and like you will find that there are different words or different methods for it i think if you go back to like the first principles of stuff and you look at again what we said at the start what is the tendon designed for transmit force or be like a spring Mm. so then the first part is we can't really function like a spring at the start can we because it's too sore so can it transmit force not if it's sore. So we've tried to redistribute the force to these other places. Now let's isometrically teach that tendon to transmit force. And it has to be able to do it for a long period of time first. Because you're, 
your tendon, it just, it has to learn that function first and then you can actually access using your calf, quad, hip, glute better. Mm. And then from that place on, we can then build up into more um, concentric, eccentric work. So if we, if you imagined it, an isometric hold for your Achilles is often going to be if you stand on the edge of a step and then you keep your foot in line with your heel and you just hold that, that is an isometric work. And what the research shows with isometrics is a, it's good for pain relief. Mm. If you hold them for at least 45 seconds, or have the ability to, and you can do multiple sets of that with a bit of rest in between, that is going to cause you to have some pain relief, which is really good. That's a big win. But also what we know is that if you're doing that actively, you're going to get improvements in your range of motion either way by about 15 degrees. That varies per person, how mobile you are, etc. But it straight away shows you that the body then starts to trust that part. So in this case, your Achilles tendon again. Mm-hmm. And if it can start to do that and it's happy and it's not aggravating it, then we can start to play with, okay, can you actually do a calf drop or a calf raise, etc.? And then link that back into, and I think this is one of the really cool parts that we you know, do with the soulmate training, everything else is like link that into other movement. Like, can you put that into your squatting pattern, your hinging pattern, your balance patterns? Because you want to make the body trust that part of you again. Yeah. And then once you've built up those capacities, which does take time, like isometric first, get it moving up and down. At what point can we start some very low load sort of springiness movement? And that can be as simple as if anyone's heard of pogos, it's where you sort of jump on the spot. You can then even go lighter and go on the wall and do heel taps on a wall laying on your back, which is like a take a pogo and standing, lay on your back and do it on the wall. It just reduces the load quite a lot because then you've taken it from the can it transmit force it's learnt to can it then help transmit force while you go up and down now can it be springy Mm. it's it's a very simple like progressive model because it's easy and it works yeah it it makes sense yeah yeah and so if you're doing all of these things to help the tendon better transmit and absorb load while also addressing other areas of potential dysfunction or stiffness or weakness or whatever in the foot um, and the hip especially or at the knee and the quads then it's like a a perfect combination basically because you're you're not only uh, improving the ability for the tendon to handle load but you're also um, making everything work together such that making all the different parts work together such that the Achilles doesn't have to take on so much load. Mm. Um, so I think, I think those two things are important. Well, out of interest, where do you think the, the sort of big focus on eccentrics came from? Because that was when, when we were going through uni, it was like very like um, tendons need a lot of eccentric load, but technically it doesn't really make sense. Is it just because people are more likely to do eccentric movements slower? I think... I- a, I reckon that's probably a really good part. I think part of it comes to what we understand with um, muscle lengthening and shortening, that we know that when you uh, eccentrically load soft tissue, which is tendon and ligaments and like fascia in your body, it does it can store energy that then allows it to then repurpose that energy. So that's what the spring is. Like you can load the spring and then you can release the energy. Right, yeah. One of the biggest problems with it though is that you, you can take on a lot more strength load there so people start weighting up pretty quickly but mm. it doesn't always take into account again like the technique factors and also I think you you look at it from like a physiological or you go deep into the anatomy it seems to make theoretical sense mm. but then you look at it practically and like each of the different aspects has some utility so it's not that eccentrics are 
the only thing that are there and it's just and like you said it's a slow movement and people start slow which is good but you still need to get fast yeah like if you don't ever practice jumping and hopping doing slow calf raises or slow calf drops is not going to help you get back to running yeah i guess the that old weightlifting adage of slow is smooth smooth is fast Mm. so maybe an issue was that if people focused just on concentric uh exercises then they would just be bashing out calf raises and not really slowing the movement down and i think slowing the movement down like you said is kind of good for building load bearing capacity in the tendon but also helps you focus on movement quality a bit more um even the textbooks now updated quite a bit like the one that we got at uni when we went through rereading all the new chapters and stuff that have come out in the latest one they they really do talk about like can you actively achieve like a full calf raise where mm. you know both your big toe little toe knuckle on the ground and you actually get all the way up yeah whereas 30 40 years ago it's never really stated like what their calf raise was what or, is like, a good calf raise yeah. <laughs> yeah. they sort of just do certain movements and that's where some of the skepticism with some of the research comes from is because it's not clearly stated we actually don't know what they did to get the results and those yeah. results aren't necessarily reproducible if we can't specifically replicate them true whereas yeah the new stuff is coming out a lot more which is a lot better and again it, it, it just says like you do what the easiest way to match it is meet your body where it is and yeah. often that is easiest to start with isometrics and work forward yeah and even if you find in clinic oh they can do the isometrics well then great start loading them and see where they get to yeah yeah and that, that's a good takeaway is you need to be able to meet your body where you're at start with the easiest lowest load and build up and literally pain pain is your guide like the, i think that We've talked about it before, but a lot of people get really frustrated and and annoyed with pain, which is understandable because it is kind of annoying at at some points, but also it is your teacher Mm. and it tells your pain is like your indicator of how much load your body is willing to take on or that area is willing to take on at that time. Um, And yes, it is influenced by different aspects like we've talked about, different aspects of health. Um, But at the end of the day, your your body will let you know when you've done too much load that it can handle at that time and or if you've done just enough and that will be reflected in your pain in general i'd I'd say that's a safe i think it's a safe bet yeah so you know if you if you go into if you go straight into um plyometric work where you're working on hopping and bouncing and these kinds of things and it's too much then it's like well work your way back or even better start with isometrics just that's a safe bet that's going to be pretty much the lowest or the most accessible type where you're literally just holding one position your your calf is contracting your achilles is you know transmitting that force but you're not actually moving and then build up to more eccentric and which is lowering down so imagine you're standing on a step and lowering your heels down towards the other the the bottom step i suppose um and then very slow concentrics and then build up to that fast Mm. and i think for practitioners listening to it probably where the bias comes in is more from just like a psychological standpoint of if you can have a client walk away and they feel good they're more likely to do stuff yeah. If you make them jump and do eccentrics and it's hurting them and you're like, oh no, that's normal. That's not super encouraging. 
Whereas if you can get them to experience change straight away, often when you do these sorts of drills right early on, they feel really good. You can progress them much quicker because they trust you, they trust the exercise, and then they're, mm. they're building that confidence of their body again, which then has a whole cascade of great effects. Definitely. Yeah. So we've, and we've touched on, yeah, different um, elements of, like, I guess, interdependence, regional interdependence is the concept. So, looking at your toe toe function uh i think we mentioned midfoot function well, pronating that, pronation, that's the foot being able to absorb force which is yeah. the pronation and, and then create the rigid lever which is supination yeah um and then yeah just focusing on the actual technique of whatever the movement is you're doing whether it's running or jumping or um, anything just breaking that down practicing the different components of it um you know some something that can be helpful at first is especially for the plyometric stuff is like jumping up if you are practicing jumping jumping up onto a box first so that you're not actually having to absorb as much of the load when you come down um and then slowly practicing landing mechanics and and or you might do landing first then um jumping up onto a box I've and then jumping up and landing down. first landing first but yeah from the ground so like there yeah. are a bunch of cool plyometric work uh, that you can just do on the ground where you don't even have to jump high because you don't then you, you can practice the landing which is probably what you because it's like eccentric first and then you can practice the jumping we want to make sure you can absorb the force before you try to produce and then yeah go forward yeah. and you'll find that there are really good people out there who have done some really good modeling of like plyometric work um shout out to athletes authority specifically because mm-hmm. like some of their diagrams really solidified plyometric work for me big fan of that like what Lockie's done down there but if you understand that concept of if you can land first really well but just like on the ground you can build that up whichever direction that athlete or person or whoever needs Mm, because not everyone needs to jump up to a box you know no that's true and it's yeah and so if you can land on the ground it's basically just going really low like from a very low height, aka the ground is like the lowest height. And then you could increase how much height you're coming from. See, technically walking's plyometric, right? You are you can land. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah, just yeah, not super high. And then running is definitely a plyometric task. Yeah. So calm down, build up. Simple. Simple. Um anything else you'd add into that sort of no, I mean, not without delving way too far into the weeds of a lot. I think that's like the general concept. I mean, we have, you know, the other options for people that, again, we probably don't, we don't bias them, but they can be useful. Like orthotics can be useful, right? Yeah. Like they can help offload some of that force, particularly early on. And there are some people, but that's just going to be a better pathway mm. to get the buy-in. Um, and a, a heeled shoe is another con- another yeah. um, option. Yeah. Whereas if you really, because the, the main thing where I, I think where all of these come in, heeled shoes, orthotics or whatever, is that if your day-to-day activities flare up your pain and your Achilles, then you're not really properly able to calm it down. No, that's so, a very good point. So, and you, if you can't calm it down properly, it's a lot harder to build it back up. So if you need a heeled shoe or an orthotic or, or anything like that to calm down, because that is just a change in load, mm. really... So if you need that change in load to calm your Achilles down, then that's that's a good option as long as you know that that's not the long-term solution. Yeah, I think, and that's like, um, I got written here, like, you know, 
PRP slash injections, which would be like a corticosteroid injections. Think of them like anti-inflammatory like injections or the PRP plasma rich plasma rich platelet platelet yeah. injection that it's trying to stimulate a certain type of growth. Not great evidence for any of those things that go into tendons. No. In spaces around tendon for other sorts of problems can be useful. But in into you don't want anything injected into a tendon. That will just disrupt the tendon structure. Yeah. And in the long term, will have a far lo- higher likelihood of, of a detrimental effect. Yeah. Yeah. And the research, a lot of the research will show that, yeah, the, the risks outweigh the benefits of those kinds yeah. of injections. I'm pretty sure they still get done pretty routinely. I hear about them all the time watching just like a lot of sport. You still hear people like, oh, yeah. this on that. You know, I'm not sure where that evidence is coming from. But in, in, in the sporting world, probably for the context, it's all money and time. So they, they help can, in the short term. They can definitely give, alleviate the symptoms like a Band-Aid, but it's at a detriment to future yeah. health. Yeah, and they can increase the things of uh, increase the likelihood of things like ruptures yes. and um, yeah, just ongoing issues with the tendons. So, definitely a good idea to avoid that yeah. if possible. Yeah, probably don't want that. You don't want a surgery. Um, and surgery as well. Like again, I, I, there are a lot of surgeries done for tendon issues, and we we would be in the camp of a lot of those would probably be preventable with the right conservative approach. Um, conservative being non-surgical <laughs> um, so you know if if you well even if you do need surgery at some point I think most people these days would say you should try three months of doing stuff yeah and like that's true it's not just three months of randomly picking an assortment of exercises it's a like you know a good couple of programs of structured progressed loads so you can actually see if this works mm. and I've never seen anyone with an Achilles tendinopathy need surgery if you have a tendon rupture, oh yeah, that's a different story. We can, mm. yeah, that's a whole other conversation. But a, a tendinopathy itself, no. Mm. Actually, I was chatting with Nick about this the other day. Um, he used to work in a clinic that worked closely with sports medicine. And they were doing surgeries. Um, but he would see Achilles tendinopathies and also Achilles ruptures. And apparently they were doing a study on conservative management of Achilles ruptures. Mm. And apparently a lot of them could do quite well as well. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of good research for it. So, um, yeah, surgery really, for anything really, does need to be viewed as an absolute last resort. And generally with with, um, any tendon issues, uh, a smart, progressive training program that involves calming things down, building it back up and addressing other areas of dysfunction um, is going to work. Yeah. And if you haven't had improvement with your Achilles tendon or any tendon issue really, it's very likely that you haven't actually tried that. Yeah. <laughs> um, or alternatively, you've tried it and you've sort of just have not had the the best program that again meets you where you are yes and you need to find a practitioner or someone who can help guide you on yep. your journey through that or you may have been doing that while also eating a lot of uh, inflammatory yeah. food and sleeping very poorly and being very very stressed all of which yeah. can influence your pain experience so yeah it gets pretty <laughs> it gets pretty uh complex when you look at it like that but at the end of the day if you're focusing on improving your health every day and for, and consistently sticking to a 
loading program that gradually builds you up from low load to high load and to sort of energy storage work where you're using your Achilles like a spring, like it's made to be used, then you'll be absolutely on the right track. I think that's very well said. Hmm. Well, I guess that's a good place to wrap it I up. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. I don't think, yeah, to, to, to add anything else there, really. No, that's and right. if you if you are struggling or if you have struggled or you know someone who's struggling, just feel free to reach out because we do have options for uh, helping you. We can see you sort of one-on-one for individualized guidance um, with telehealth sessions. We're also, we'll also be working on some more online digital resources to help with these things uh, over the, uh, in 2023, especially we'll be um, looking at launching some more um, online, I guess, programs or things to help with these kinds of conditions however in the meantime reach out we can point you in the right direction we can yeah, we, see ourselves there's a whole lot of practitioners around the country right yeah so we can uh, around the world at this point yeah and that's grow. that's just growing so if if you want to see someone in person we've got people in most cities that we can recommend um especially in australia but either way reach out we'll help point you in the right direction um and otherwise thanks yeah. for listening and we'll catch and you we'll on the next one. Catch you on the next episode. We don't know what our next one's going to be yet, but... The list is long. The list is long, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, otherwise have a great day. All right. Adios. Adios. Thanks for listening to the Restore to Explore podcast. To stay up to date with all things TFC, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at thefootcollective.oz or on TikTok at thefootcollective. If you're ready to restore and explore your own natural function, you can check out our range of physical and digital tools at our online store, tfc-shopaus.com and use the code R2E10, that's R the number 2, E10, to save 10%. You'll find all the links in our show notes.